0: Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and today we're joined by Evan Mills, Dr. Evan Mills, who spent the majority of his career at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. I've known Evan for years and have long admired his research and his communication skills. He's pseudo-retired, but he's still an affiliate at the lab and a research affiliate at the Energy and Resources Group at the University of California, just delighted to have Evan on the show today. Hey, Evan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's so great to be here and talk with you again. I know. I, I, it's, I can't believe how long it's been since we have spoken. I, five, six, seven, eight years, maybe? Yeah. A long time. A long time. Anyway, looking looking good. Tell me, what are you working on these days professionally? What's going on?
1: Well, I, um, you know, I'm following my bliss uh, with kind of self-directed research and projects, if you will, I, I still maintain an affiliation with Lawrence Berkeley Lab and, and uh, you know, have those interactions available, which are great. Uh, but there's so many things that, you know, there aren't necessarily sponsors or funding for or aren't uh, mainstream hot topics that that get lots of resources, but I think that I think are important. So I, I spend time on them. And I think, uh, you know, communications is very important. Communications to general audiences is very important. So I, I spend a lot of time writing you know thousand word uh op-eds and commentaries and things like that on on topics in our in our space of energy and sustainability and environment and uh, i enjoy doing that and having the the luxury to do that um so like quality broadly that's what i'm doing or how i'm appro- approaching my professional uh presence
0: yeah, it sounds it sounds um, very fulfilling, like, like you said, the freedom to, to to delve into areas of interest to you where you want to make a statement.
1: It, it is, and things that have been knocking around in the head for a long time, but there's never been opportunity to flesh them out and chase them, and uh, that is really rewarding. And then I do have I have plenty of non energy interests, so to speak, and other things that I I do in life. I'm a very avid closed loop organic gardener, and uh, my mom was a uh, a very important, interesting artist, and I've spent a lot of time on her uh, kind of retrospective and documenting her work and well, working on another book project not related to energy and uh, getting a bit also into forest uh, forest management and carbon and forests and uh, being a, a bit of a gadfly to Cal Fire, which is really screwing up royally in California and in, in how they're managing their so-called demonstration forests, demonstrating worst practices or poor practices, I should say. So I, I do venture out uh, uh, more often than not into other topics.
0: You, you sound incredibly busy. Uh, it kind of like my grandfather, when he retired, he said he, he he couldn't imagine how he ever kept a full-time job.
1: Yeah, uh, it's uh, the, the the work fills the space that's
0: available. <laughs> well, now you've kind of gotten known for what this pinpointing sleeper uses of energy, right? That's, is that sort of a theme that... you've sort of grabbed onto you've said okay here's here's areas that people really need to know about
1: yeah i i uh in reflecting back you know it's in in looking back and thinking about you know what's is there a method to the madness is there a pattern is there you know what kinds of things have i ended up doing and being attracted to and yeah um the the edge cases you know there are so many topics that don't get attention as i alluded before alluded to before from uh, don't get attention from mainstream policies or programs or research agendas and you know, there've been so many of them I've, you know, I've worked on, uh, like the problem of kerosene lighting in the developing world, you know, more, more generally energy access, people like to call it, but help to bring in white LEDs with, uh, small rechargeable batteries and tiny solar panels that are all shrink wrapped and ready to go. Don't require electricians very actually affordable, you know, uh, a lot on, uh, this issue of insurance and how is the insurance affected insurance industry affected by by climate change what are the risks and opportunities uh green gaming that's a great example uh, my son and i uh kind of stumbled into this question of, of computer gaming video gaming and started pulling on that thread some years ago uh, on our own time and uh found just an extraordinary you know five billion dollar a year energy bill in the united states from from freaking video gaming and and what's going on and you know are there efficiency opportunities and that ended up becoming a big uh, California Energy Commission project uh, at LBL and we built a whole gaming lab and tested left and right and up and down all these different platforms virtual reality uh, the games themselves you know have an effect one one game will use more energy than another game and and uh, just fascinating you know array of of results and interests uh, interesting facets that come out and policy recommendations and so on in the early 80s i was working on low income housing and low income uh, yeah housing energy issues before that was a lot of a, a a big topic worked with on public housing originally actually my master's thesis was energy use and public housing in 1987 and we had work at lbl you know after that and and before during and after that on on the topic so i think these these edges and and the the one that's most compelling and interesting right now is the carbon footprint of indoor cannabis cultivation which is a classic topic that nobody works on and policymakers don't want to touch it and the environmental groups don't want to touch it and but it's very fascinating and very prodigious also similar to gaming actually five six billion dollars a year of energy use in the united states for an energy intensive so indoor agriculture more broadly so I, I don't know for me those are the kind of edge case things that are not the light bulbs and the refrigerators and the water heaters, although those, those are important too.
0: How interesting. You thrive on diversity, I can, I can tell. Let's, let's back up just for a minute. I want to talk about the cannabis industry and the green gaming some more and the insurance connection with the IPCC, but let's just back up for the sake of the audience. Everybody, feedback I get from these podcasts, by the way, Evan, is that people like hearing about so where you're coming from and not just your professional accomplishments, but born and raised where?
1: Yeah, roots are important. Well, uh, half a step before that, my grandparents uh, hitchhiked out to California from New York in the 1920s to Los Angeles. Uh, Looking back at old yellow pictures, uh, they were out very outdoorsy. You know, they were at these camps in the in the uh, Catskills and uh, other areas and camping. And they were vegetarians in the 30s. And there was even a fruitarian in the family, Ted. Uh, and into physical fitness and things like that and so a really interesting family and and uh i was born and raised in uh so they hitched out to la hitchhiked out to la and uh worked and lived in hollywood and i was born and raised in the fabled laurel canyon in the hollywood hills and grew up there and i was too young to get into much trouble unfortunately but you know literally Joni mitchell lived you know a few doors down the street and uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were there and Zappa was there and Carol King was there and her kids were in my class, you know, in grammar school growing up. The, uh, the Renaissance Pleasure Fair was born there. The, your California listeners will know about it, you know, a block away. My my best friend's uh, parents, you know, created it. He, he's now running that, that company. So uh, born and raised in Los Angeles, Hollywood Hills.
0: Oh how what what interesting! I love that history of the Laurel Canyon and all the musicians. I read I read voraciously about that era and uh, what what. Yeah, a... no,
1: I was there before it was glitzy and you know it was just hyper creative and and you know the upbringing was rich. I mean there were there were artists, there were scientists, there were intellectuals. You know what today we like to call creatives of all sorts around, and uh, I had incredible mentors and uh my parents were among them you know my parents were very interesting people both of them
0: was the was the the move to to berkeley and in your your academic career then uh was that rooted in your grandparents sort of environmentalism and all uh,
1: do you think well, that's the, the reason i mentioned it i mean really there was so much time outdoors and in nature and uh kind of an ethic and values yeah. around that so it it uh it certainly wasn't a coincidence that i got into this field And my my dad you know in the 70s you know when i was a teenager and heading towards college he's like look into solar energy evan and look into energy savings and uh, these are also people who right, who grew up in times of prudence and you know the world war and you know turn off the lights when you leave the room and even at that very fundamental level the, the values were around in ways that they aren't uh,
0: in the same way today so was the first stop berkeley then in the in the in the college career
1: uh, no, I, I uh, so I went to a fabulous alternative high school in uh, in Southern California, and then I went to Santa Cruz. UC Santa Cruz, and I got exposed to energy and buildings energy there. Transferred and got hooked right away, and then transferred. Uh, I don't know, as a sophomore, I think to UC Berkeley, and uh, finished my bachelor's and my master's there in the Energy and Resources Group.
0: And then, and then here comes the Swedish connection. Uh... And what was with Thomas Johansson? Was the the professor there at the at Lund University? That it was you know, uh, very
1: there. very important person. I you know I I did uh, I did at at Berkeley run into this character named Art Rosenfeld who was was so influential and worked with him at, at LBL even as an undergrad. And Art knew Thomas. Yeah. And when I was kind of ready, I think it was between. It was after my masters and i was you know looking to do something out of the box different different cultural context different academic context for for a little while and then come back to california and he said well thomas is looking for someone to be a guest researcher in his department at lund university and thomas he's the kind of one of the grandfathers of global sustainable energy scenario thinking and he worked a lot with bob williams at princeton very closely and Amulya Reddy from india and uh Jose Goldenberg from Brazil uh, all of whom were big figures you know in in global energy and development issues and so uh I ended up spending four years in Sweden doing my PhD under Tomas and uh, we worked on the the main kind of organizing problem organizing topic was the nuclear phase out in Sweden which came immediately on the heels of Chernobyl and you know I, I went there in 87 and Chernobyl was 86 and Sweden, as you might remember, they were the first country to measure it and tell the world uh, right across the Baltic there. And uh, so Sweden had a, a referendum on nuclear power, a uh, very rare political public decision to phase out all nuclear. And then they also had uh, the, effect, the equivalent of referenda on not building out their wild rivers in the north so more hydro was not an option and then they also even back then wanted to uh cap and reduce co2 so how do you do that you know how do you not use your rivers and how do you not use nuclear so my my main project there was uh building scenarios of Sweden uh without uh without nuclear without more hydro and with vastly less carbon and and ideally without increasing the cost of energy services so that was you know a big uh you know baptism into scenario work and global thinking and future studies. And that uh, forecasting is one thing, but we have self-determination. So we can also do scenarios and find good scenarios for the future and figure out the path and how to get to them and not just let the future, energy future in this case, just happen to us. And well, and
0: I imagine, that, I imagine that the energy efficiency was at the root of the- or- so the core of the solution. Absolutely, the yeah.
1: And we looked at all sectors. So that also got me out of the building sector. We looked at transportation and industry and, and non-residential. So it was a, a whole sect, whole electric industry scenario. Yeah. Efficiency first. It was true then and it's true now. And But then we brought in renewables behind it to make up the, to provide the demand that was necessary.
0: And then after Sweden, uh, back to LBNL. Sure. And let's talk about art for a second. I, I, I was lucky enough to have gotten to know art pretty well because I was working for, for Amory Lovins at the time. And art was out all the time and back and forth. And most of the people- It in
1: crime, yeah. Most,
0: most of the people you mentioned, I, I got to meet through Amory, who's still in my life. I still own my house right next to the old original or headquarters out in Colorado. But But talk about art, what an inspiration.
1: Yeah, you know, my most important mentor and the bar was high i mean i had a lot of through life really great people but art was the most important infectious enthusiasm right and drive and intellectual curiosity
0: yeah.
1: and uh i just blundered into a class of his at berkeley i didn't know who he was blundered into a class with him uh marianne piet was a student there <laughs> and alan alan meyer wasn't in the class but uh Carl bloomstein was in there auditing and. Uh, other interesting people and 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 then are brought in other people from the community uh to do you know sub lecturing uh, but at any rate uh, yeah he just said one day hey you want to come up the hill i don't know what's the hill oh, oh lawrence berkeley lab what's that and oh just get in my vw rabbit you know and we'll be up there in five minutes and i'll show you around and and 40 years later i was retiring you know it's it was uh he was so inclusive and uh so I started in 82 as a student, and then it was immediately folded in, uh, you know, to the community up there. I eventually became his deputy uh, in the Center for Building Science, and then the director for the Center for Building Science when he uh, went to work in the first Clinton administration. And, uh, you know, we continued to collaborate over the years and write stuff together and, and interact and, you know, know each other's families. Um, very rare combination of uh, benevolence and brilliance you know, uh, like I said, just so generous, you know, those days your older listeners will know what a Rolodex is, you know, and he would open his Rolodex and he'd pull out a card and he'd throw it on the copy machine. It's like, oh, you have to call this person. You have to call that person. The opposite of territorial, you know, just so sharing and sharing of credit and even, you know, funding. I mean, he won the Fermi award, $400,000, I think, from the Department of Energy later in his career. And he gave all that money away to, you know different people I was included in the list to, to help them with their skunkworks project that actually was helping to fund my original uh, kerosene uh, off-grid LED lighting uh displacement of kerosene work and I you know I learned a lot from him about communication and and uh, getting the word out and taking the time you know to talk to non-specialists and and boil down you know your message and I think topically you know our main if there was kind of an umbrella, you know, what is the return on investment in R and D? Um, cause of course we were in an R and D ecosystem and he was constantly the spearhead of defending budgets against the, the, the Reagans of the world and making the case that this public investment in energy R and D, you know, pays for itself many times over. And so we did a lot of, you know, analysis and writing together on that. And we got, uh, kind of at my suggestion, actually, later we got into this area of non-energy benefits, which now we more call co-benefits. And he and I wrote, you know, arguably the first paper on that, you know, way back in the nineties, uh, just, uh, what is it besides saving BTUs, you know, well, is there a safety benefit? Is there a, is there a, uh, quality benefit? You know, what are the other co-benefits that come along with energy efficiency? So we, you know, we, we got to collaborate on, on uh, really interesting topics.
0: What a, what a terrific tribute you, you just gave to Art Rosenfeld. And I had uh, I had Andrew McAllister on the show uh, mm-hmm. just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and Art, of course, went on to the California Energy Commission. And he, he said that that was his favorite job. Of course, I think probably when he was at Berkeley, he said that was his favorite job, too. But uh, Andrew and I uh, re- just reflected on the fact that that unit of energy, the, the Rosenfeld, Yes. What is that? The the a- annual output of a typical five hundred megawatt yeah. plant. Yeah. Uh, what a, what a great I'm one
1: of the hundred co authors on that paper. Ted. Are you? Yes. Oh, that, now that's the perfect segue. It was a tribute paper, you know, to art and and uh, let's memorialize him with a, a new unit, you know, so he can be remembered alongside the BTU.
0: That's incredible. That's just, that that is fantastic. Um, well, now you're also involved with the IPCC. And you're one of the hundreds of scientists that were that jointly received the Nobel Prize in what was that, 2007? Sounds about right. <laughs> and and your role was, I, you said to me in an email recently that, that uh-huh. your role was, I think, involving or looking at the insurance industry or, or bringing in the insurance. Can you kind of clarify that role? And
1: Sure. Happy to chat about it. The so first of all, I mean, most people in our community know the th- the third of the three working groups in IPCC. So there are three giant working groups. One looks at climate chemistry, what's happening, the physics in the climate. The other looks at vulnerability, impacts, and adaptation. And the third one looks at what they call mitigation, meaning uh, emissions reduction. And most of our friends, of course, are in, in the third bucket spiritually. Uh, I got to work in the second one because we we started looking the the issue was what is the vulnerability of different sectors of the economy tourism agriculture uh etc what about insurance uh, which is uh, most people don't know this but it is the world's largest industry insurance is three times the revenue today of the oil industry oil and gas industry combined 6 trillion dollars a year and so i i got and and, and that That actually grew out of the non-energy benefits work because in that work with with art because we were looking at well you know do you have less risk of mold formation in in a home or do you have better resilience when the power is out or you know is a spray foam roof more wind resilient in hurricane territory because it's it's fastened better to the, the the top plates of the walls you know and and so that we didn't think about insurance at that time but like safety durability risk more generically and so i was primed to i just kind of one of these lights goes on and uh, you know various readings and, and encounters with people that hey what about the insurance industry as a stakeholder here so at any rate the ipcc had a whole chapter in working group two on they called it financial services because we looked at banking and insurance and i was the co-lead author uh, and there were about 15 uh, sub authors under us but i was one of the really heavy lifting people at the chapter level and um i also had other ipcc work later i think i I was part of six or seven chapters you know over several assessment cycles Uh, so i also did work in mitigation efficiency chapters later i worked on a north america impacts chapter where we looked at kind of uh, my contribution was what about the North American insurance industry and did some work on wildfire in in there also uh but a different part of IPCC than than uh, a lot of folks have worked on and that also led to the we have these U.S. National Climate Assessments here that are like mini IPCCs for North America or for the U.S. and they're done also uh, on a multi-annual basis and I got to be a, a lead author in that uh, subsequently and that was really uh, fascinating.
0: Well, congratulations. I'm proud of you. I hope your family's proud of you. Um, but the it was con- a
1: great thing to be part of. I mean, it, it, yeah. crucible for learning. You know, being, you know, traveling around the world to all these meetings, all these unbelievable people. You know, who are looking at every aspect of the climate problem, way beyond energy use and way beyond energy and use, and uh, smart people and great writing, great, very well organized. You know, so it was. It was a wonderful learning opportunity Uh, things weren't all always fun uh you know going wading into this area because i I got into the this brought me directly into the question of what the the academics uh jargonistically call um uh, call attribution i'm sorry of well okay this is happening we have this flood we have this fire we have this windstorm but but we can't attribute that to climate change and so there there was just then beginning to emerge a a technical field and and analytical, you know, uh, machinery, brain trust to look at attribution and use advanced statistics. And I'm not a statistician, but I got drawn into that because so many of the data came from the insurance industry Mm -hmm. of rising losses, loss events, loss costs, because they're the counters, you know, they're in the hub all these so many of these losses channel through the insurance industry the costs accumulate there and then and the impacts and then they're distributed back out in the form of premiums and payouts and so you know i was one time i was uh you know i was attacked by patrick michaels you know coal industry chill on climate denialism you know in popular media ad hominem attacks by other people who will go unnamed big debate in science magazine I had an article in science about insurance in 2005 around this issue and uh, this scathing you know letter came in uh and then i was given a whole page to respond to the letter and and it was a crucible you know it was very intense and you know it, when uh you know your work is attacked in such a kind of mean-spirited way but under a pseudo-scientific you know veil And uh, the other one that I'll always remember, I was going to Australia. I was invited by the Australian Insurance Associations to come and keynote one of their big annual meetings. And I'm like getting ready to go to Australia and I'm reading up about Australia and climate change. And I pull up a, you know, YouTube and there's like a, there's a news story and this climate scientist is giving a speech in Australia on climate change solutions and so on. And this, this person from in the back of the room comes running towards the podium with a, with a gallows noose in his hand you know, it has to be bodily removed from the, I mean, it's funny, right? But it's, it's more than funny. It's threatening. It's dangerous. It's scary. And I'm like about to get on the plane to go down there. Not that we didn't have those kind of people here too, but uh, it was, it was not always, uh, it was fun and it was intriguing, but it wasn't always uh, pleasant. Yeah. Hey,
0: let's talk about the cannabis industry. Um, America's number one cash crop, I understand from something that you wrote. um, This is, this is a, but your focus has been on the sort of the ESG lens. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. Uh, so it started with energy. And these these indoor cultivation facilities, which are about 60% now of all cannabis production in the United States are indoor factory farms that are, uh, they have to be run. It's like you have to recreate Hawaii in Fargo, North Dakota. You have to recreate Hawaii in Phoenix, Arizona, meaning you need a, a a nice, gentle 80 degrees, 50% humidity when it's 120 outside or when it's minus 20 outside. And so these facilities are incredibly energy intensive and that had not been documented, had not been analyzed, had not been modeled. And uh, so I, you know, I got involved in that about 2011, 2010, wrote a paper in energy policy, did the first kind of uh broad brush analysis of it and you know found that these facilities were you know 70 times more energy intensive than the warehouses that were being repurposed you know for them and uh you know all these different energy metrics um and and it was 3 million cars worth of CO2 emissions nationally kind of bottom line and these are Walmart sized buildings uh as energy intensive as data centers and so that was kind of the starting point And, you know, what do you do? Uh, But more recently, so ESG, you know, as most most listeners probably know, stands for environment, social, and governance. And this is a a often poorly understood, actually, in popular realm. It's not about are you doing good in the world? Meaning, sorry, ESG is an analysis framework that's applied to companies, typically traded companies. And entities like Morningstar, Standard & Poor, have ESG rating lenses. But they're concerned about business risk. They're concerned about environment, social and government's activities that could affect solvency, could could, uh, affect litigation, could cause litigation, things that that hurt the business and hurt the shareholders. And so the E was clear enough on cannabis. I was invited to write an article in a journal that specializes on this uh, huge, huge dollar spend. So it's an issue for financial solvency for the companies because they're spending 40% of their costs are for energy. You know, commercial building, as we famously said all these years, one percent of the cost is energy. Most of it's employees, it's other things. But this is a very energy-sensitive industry. And but then on the social side, you know, there's environmental justice. Kind of come back to that in a second, if you'd like. There's there's a huge disproportionate impact of the energy use of the industry on lower income, non-white, already environmentally overburdened populations. Uh, we can circle back if you want, and then the governance side it more speaks to kind of transparency on carbon and energy stranded asset risk, and uh, the, the behavior of corporate leaders. And you know, as you probably know, you know, Musk got thrown off of the Standard and Poor ESG index. How would you throw Tesla off of the ESG list because they're not transparent? You know, they're they're uh, how are they're not being clear on how they get their cobalt or their other critical minerals and they're doing it in ways that are not socially responsible and let alone the things outside of environment like racism Uh, and so tesla like you're out of here you know so esg is about the behavior of these companies through all these lenses and my work on the energy fed into that um, we can chat about environmental justice for a second if you want. It's very poignant. Uh, so. Let me
0: ask you, let me just ask, I want to ask a follow-up question on the energy yeah. side of it, because what's the solution? Is is the solution that we ought to be growing outdoors in climates that are conducive, that, that you're not trying to recreate, like you said, Hawaii uh, in the middle of the winter in North Dakota? Is that fundamentally the solution? And if that's the case, why isn't that being done? Why are we okay. Why are we well, having it was done. houses?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it is the right question, and and the answer is yes. You know, I've analyzed. I mean, originally I came into it like any good disciple of Art Rosenfeld. It's like we can throw efficient light bulbs at this problem and fix it. And after a dozen years hammering at this from every angle, it's like no, we can't. It's just too energy intensive, too problematic, and so uh, I mean, just for example, okay, we want to. We want to zero out the carbon footprint with solar panels on the roof. Let's throw solar at it, twenty times the roof area. Yeah, yeah, sure. Do that. I mean, and you, and you know, we could talk about gr- centralized grid renewables. It's just a bad idea. We need, we're we're not building that fast enough. We need that for critical activities like hospitals and houses where you you have to be inside and you need electricity services to squander that on cannabis is uh you know it's just it's irresponsible you know to the point of kind of being unethical uh so yes it was it's been done outside for five 5 five thousand years until about 30 years ago you know and and so why why problems.
0: why did that happen 30 years ago why did it, i i think in colorado you correct me if i'm wrong but i think all of the cannabis has to be grown within the state, I thought.
1: Well, every state, because there's federal uh, interstate transit port uh, prohibitions because it's schedule one federally. So no state can import, uh, there might be some chinks starting to happen. I'm not quite sure, but basically we have, the federal position has created so much trouble, not just on energy, but on medical research, on financing, on insurance, all kinds of things. Uh, but, you know, you have to grow everything in state. So if you're in North Dakota <laughs> or if you're in Arizona, I mean, Arizona is not a good climate. I exactly. mean, you could and you could do some. But the reality is uh, I, I did the math. We only need like 0.003 percent. So three thousandths of one percent of all American agricultural land to grow the 17,000 tons of of cannabis that people are consuming these days, it's like we need a very small amount of land to do it, and um, you, you could do that in a in a uh, in Hawaii. You could do it all in Hawaii. In Hawaii. So, it's, so
0: it's federal regulation that is. Well, that's
1: not the only. No, yeah. So you asked the question. I mean, there are so many reasons. Originally, it was to be covert. In part, it was just to get out of the the you know, so that helicopters flying over didn't know what you were doing until they had uh, the infrared cameras than they could but no there are a lot of reasons there are a lot of arguments that that all are quite debunkable but there's a whole list of 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 things uh, obviously you're keeping you're controlling nature you know i mean this is good you, you don't have to worry about hailstorms. you don't have to worry about certain pests you have to worry about others like mold uh you uh you have a much more uniform labor market because it, it growing indoors you have seven up to seven crops a year seven crops a year indoors outdoors in hawaii you can get three so it's not like one versus seven again it goes to geography and and choices so there are a lot of reasons but uh the industry is buckling under the costs and and the unexpected costs the capital costs i mean these facilities they'll spend a hundred million dollars building a cannabis grow big one you know but there are multi multi multi-million square foot facilities yeah. yeah one of them in downtown Oakland in a in a uh, impoverished neighborhood these investors from Colorado came in bought two borrowed 50 million dollars from the bank bought two uh, historic warehouses set up five acres of canopy indoors blew the PG;E grid out brought in a dozen 50foot diesel tractor trailer generators and ran them for two years to run these grows before getting shut down by the ham handed regulators who were completely aware of it the whole time and just couldn't couldn't pull the trigger uh and this is a, a the the most non-white part of oakland the poorest part of oakland and the already most environmentally overburdened and you have you know in addition to diesel fumes and things like that you have volatile, volatile organic compounds coming off of the plants that are uh okay in very small consumer quantities and are unhealthful, <laughs> you yeah. know, the workers are exposed to a thousand times the background level of VOCs who are inside.
0: Um, Evan, so. let, me, uh, let me, let me, let me jump in here. We're running a little bit over time and I, I want to get to a little bit of your house project uh, in, in, the, in the last bit here. But, but is there a solution for this cannabis <clears throat> heavily highly intensive energy use is there is there a solution
1: yeah no no problem outdoors sustainably you can have very unsustainable agriculture but we've shown you can grow it actually with less land area and less water use which is debunks a myth about indoors being a, a, an advantage uh, but we need you know policy just like with everything yep. and we need interstate transport although you know most states can do something outdoors seasonally but they just you know if if you have to
0: but it's it really, not a problem
1: technically or botanically. It's a problem public policy-wise. Very interesting.
0: Okay, very good. We could talk about that all day and all night, I think, which is so fascinating. Let's talk about you. I think it was in 2008 uh, you decided to to take on a house project and to decarbonize your home. Uh, you bought a home that was, what, it was built in the 1970s. Uh, you, you wrote that great paper I've shared with you <laughs> folks about Kermit was right. It's not easy going green. Can you, uh, I I don't want to go too deep into it, but what were some of the takeaways from that experience?
1: Yeah. Thanks for asking about that. Uh, The paper is 27 pages long and growing because I keep unfortunately having to add to it every time I try to make an improvement. So, you know, we have the, the technology, but there's way too much happy talk in our field and in our community and overselling of how easy it is to do this. And there's just this recurring theme of low quality execution and lack of usability and lack of user-centered, you know, planning. And more particularly, you know, I there was a LinkedIn post I saw last week in this installer of heat pump water heaters, he's had to pull out 20 of the 21 heat pump water heaters he's installed because of noise complaints from the, the homeowners. You know, noise is an issue that's supposed to have been resolved years ago. And it and it everybody's saying it's resolved and it's not. And Uh, At any rate, I think a a deeper problem is much of the workforce really doesn't have the mentality. uh, There are good tradespeople and there are people doing this, obviously, but these are the exceptions. Mm -hmm. And most of the workforce, what I've found on not just my own home, but others is, you know, there's a real competency gap and there's a real soft skills gap following through, communicating clearly, thinking things through you know, documenting. Uh, it, it's its a problem. I put triple pane windows in the house, uh, heat mirror windows that we had helped develop at LBL, the basic technology back in the 80s. And, you know, the patio doors are sticking. An older person would not be able to open these doors and my children at the time could not open the doors if they were sealed well. And I just... Some heat pump installer just recommended to me a dual fuel heat pump in a mild climate. So he wanted to put in a natural gas furnace, you know, backing up a heat pump in you know mild northern California. And the, the list is just unfortunately very long. So um, I see the problem. There's a lot of very also libertarian-minded people in the trades who really poo-poo the the government, the government and the programs and the incentives, and they they don't get smart on the incentives. They don't they disrespect the guidelines, you know, I'm putting in a system right now at a second home and they've, they've refused to size it. And they, and I ran the calcs and the unit they're recommending is twice this heat pump, twice the necessary size, you know, and just on and on. So it's, it's demoralizing. And I think we have deeper problems than we want to recognize in the policy community and in the rah-rah. I mean, I'm, I'm as rah-rah as as the best of them on we can do this and and look at all these great examples, but scaling this up and not turning people off, we call it market spoiling. You know, I wrote a whole piece recently on heat pump water heaters, the history of heat pump water heaters in the US and then comparing to other countries and the federal government and the state entities and the utilities have done so much to, to spoil the market for heat pump water heaters by getting out over their skis. And, you know, not listening to their own research, not not following their own survey results, and and getting technology out there that's not ready for prime time. Now we have great heat pump water heaters, but still, the, you know, they first came to the U.S. in 1950s, and they've been in and out of the market here, and just ruining, you know, failing, and the companies leaving and pulling out, and and the consumers are on this roller coaster ride that's really uh, a turnoff, you know, and so people, there's a lot of hesitancy now about them. So I want to. I want I to, want to errors, you know that, that are happening. Sorry, that I, don't I, think... want, I
0: don't want to leave the conversation on a on a down note. Um, so I, I take it that um, your passion then is is raising awareness. It's not just a technological, but it's the whole infrastructure, the installation. It's the it's the mindset of the of the trades. It's It's a it's a, a myriad situa- of, of issues that have brought us to this point. And your job is to raise awareness about that so that we do start developing the trades better and we do work on our supply chains, et cetera. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and the delivery mechanisms too, the program design. And really, I, I got to work a lot with uh, specialists in the field called usability on software development. And that's like a software thing. Do, do people understand this tool? Can they navigate through it? Do they do what you want them to do? They have the experience you want them to have. And I think we need to see, and we can see more of that mentality brought to efficiency and decarb program design. You know, does your website make sense? Does it work? Do, do people, are there dead links? And, you know, do they get, uh, uh, the, the wrong advice or they more forced to wait too long? There's all kinds of things. So, yeah, I think, uh, there's room to improve there's always room to improve and uh, a great example of that is building commissioning which is an area i worked in a lot and we we found we we built a database of 600 million square feet of commercial buildings in the united states that have been commissioned which is quality assurance it's not technology it's coming in and seeing that things are working the way they were supposed to and uh, things haven't been defeated and we got median 15 percent whole building energy savings for 10 cents a square foot you know, on the first study, you know, payback time in weeks and months and, and avoiding quality problems. So we we know how to quality assure, but uh, it's just not done enough. So quality assurance, quality control is just as important as having a good idea and good gear and good best practices guides, you know, is it ma- making sure that it happens and, and that the tradespeople are more respected, you know, and more uh, better educated and trained. And I, I, I am optimistic guardedly, about being able to do that.
0: Let's, let's stop right there. How great. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation and catching up with you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Evan.
1: My pleasure. It's, it's rare that we get to kind of have a structured opportunity to reflect, you know, and take stock. And, and so I, I thank you for the, the opportunity to think and talk about it.
0: You're more than welcome. And thank you for your, all that you've done contributing to this world of energy efficiency and, and uh, preserving the planet. Pleasure. Talk to you soon. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.